0: Welcome to a new episode of the Virtual Coffee Break with the MSU Extension Dairy Team. My name is Marty Mangual and I'm a Dairy Educator in West Michigan. In today's episode, I'll be joined by Associate Professor of Dairy Nutrition in Michigan State University, Dr. Adam Locke. We will spend some time discussing two interesting projects he has worked on recently, then We will briefly comment on milk fat depression and what management recommendations can help you improve or prevent this problem. Data from those projects will be presented in the episode. As the majority of academic research studies, data is measured using the metric system. Due to this, I'll be jumping in the episode every now and then to provide the data values in the English system. With that clarification made, let's go ahead and get started. Adam, we're very happy that you have joined us today. Welcome to the Coffee Break.
1: Thank you very much, Martin.
0: Of course, today we'll be talking um, a little bit about fats, general recommendations for milk fat depression for our producers, but I would like to focus on new findings that your group have been working with. Can you tell me a little bit of the research your team has worked on with fresh cows?
1: Yeah, sure. Thank you. There's a bit of a background there. There is a general dogma. Probably since the 1980s now, that uh, don't feed fat to fresh cows because cows are already mobilizing fatty acids due to the negative energy balance. So, why would you feed more fat uh, to those cows? And our work the last four, four or five years now is starting to really challenge that. In the 80s and 90s, with research uh, with cows that are obviously quite different from how they are now, but really the key difference was they were feeding. Oil seeds or animal fats at very high levels, and seeing some of these negative effects on feed intake, loss of production, and some of those things. And that's what led to the, well, don't feed fat to fresh cows. And the biology is very different between fat being mobilized from the cow versus fatty acids involved in the circulation. Our work the last decade now has challenged this concept to simply put it that a bag of supplemental fat is not a bag of fat. And we really need to consider individual fatty acids when looking at cows across all stages of lactation. We started in uh, post beak high-producing established lactation cows, and really started looking at the effects, first of all, of individual saturated fatty acids, and then blends of saturated and unsaturated fatty acids, and really sort of getting a good idea of this concept that different fatty acids can alter nutrient partitioning toward maybe milk, particularly not fat production, or maybe body weight gain. Um, And then more recently now, we've started to take those uh, findings and try and put them into that critical phase in that transition cow, particularly in in the fresh cow, so from calving. We haven't done ourselves any work pre-calving yet during that transition period. So what we've been looking at is uh, some of our uh, different fatty acid blends that we've been been, uh, doing sort of asking how does the cow react to those when supplemented in the first three weeks of lactation and then in some instances how they may also impact during what i'd call that peak period you know week three out to week 10 as we go up through peak lactation what we're also finding is that we can have some significant carryover effects as well on how we impact the fresh cow or how we feed the fresh cow and really have um, some impacts on her uh, later milk production. We've seen that with fatty acid supplementation recently. Of course, uh, Mike Allen of Michigan State has, looked at, has some of that with uh, different starch types and contents, uh, chromium. And Barry Bradford, who's here at MSU now, has looked at some of that in terms of um, anti-inflammatories in that fresh cow as well. So what we've been looking at is focused on palmitic acid supplementation in the past particularly around the the um, efficacy of it for increasing milk fat. So our first fresh cow study looked at the effects of palmitic acid in that fresh and the peak period. We saw some very exciting results where we were getting four and a half kilos, you know, 10 pounds more milk in both the fresh and that peak period in cows that were fed um, more uh, supplements with palmitic acid. So one of these uh, commercially available palmitic acid enriched supplements, you know, so around about 80 to 90% palmitic acid.
0: So you're seeing a 10 pound increase on yield. What about the fat concentration or fat yield?
1: So that was energy corrected milk yield. Okay. Improvement. So in, in, in the fresh period, that would be all driven by increased milk fat. In the peak period, we actually got a couple kilos more milk yield, if I recall off the top of my head, um, and then also driven by more milk fat. Um, so, cows that were fed palmitic acid in that study through the fresh and the peak period, they averaged about four and a half kilos more milk product, energy corrected milk than the control. Now, the one thing to point out in that study is in a fresh period, those cows had more uh, palmitic acid. They did lose a bit more body weight, it was about 25 kilos more body weight. And of course, there are some concerns with more body weight loss in that fresh period from a animal health, rep- long term reproduction. We didn't see any health issues, but again, the study was not powered or designed to look at health okay. in, or, or reproduction. Um, but there were some concerns about that, you know, but take it take that in mind as well that we also got four and a half kilos more energy corrected milk. There has to be a balance in, in all of those um, things. So what we did after that study in the fresh cow, we took some of our work with laic acid in post-peak cows where we saw that increasing oleic acid in very high-producing cows promoted milk production, but in some cows it also promoted more body weight gain. So we took that into the fresh cow and said, well, if we alter the proportion of palmitic acid and oleic acid, can we maybe still get more milk production, but also minimize body weight loss? So that was a study um, we did a couple of years ago Um, we've presented at a number of nutrition meetings, where when we increase the oleic acid content of the supplement, of our supplement blend, um, we are able to get, compared to no added fat, we're able to get more milk and no additional body weight loss. Whereas with our palmitic acid treatment, we saw very similar results to the study I was talking about earlier, where we got more milk, more body weight loss. But when we came in with some of that oleic acid, we're able to get the more milk without the extra body weight loss. So more recently, we've done some work with uh, Dr. Contreras in our vet school here at MSU, and we actually did some um, post-ruminal infusions of oleic acid in fresh cows. So straight from calving, we had cannulated cows, infused laic acid to bypass the rumen, and that's where it gets really exciting now, I think, where the work that Dr. Contreras has shown there is if we provide even small amounts of oleic acid, 60 grams a day, uh, we can impact and shift insulin sensitivity of adipose tissue and the extent of lipolysis or fat mobilization. So really tying together some of these different fatty acids, particularly oleic acid in that case, and how we can help improve milk production but maybe minimise body weight loss. Adsa, or we have an abstract accepted for this summer's ADSA. Um, where we took a new product that had been made that had the same blend as we researched before, so 60% palmitic, 30% Aleic as a calcium salt, and we fed that in both the fresh and the high period. And we saw some uh, similar results where we were able to get improved milk production, but it was not at the expense of more body weight loss.
0: So uh, kind of to to bring back a little bit what you mentioned, your... Most of this blend you're talking about is focusing on a
1: 60% palmitic, 40% oleic, right? 30% oleic, so there's always a little bit of other fatty acids in there. Okay. You can do that by having, um, there are a couple supplements out there now that have that ratio, um, or you can do it how we did it in our original studies, where you buy a palmitic acid and mixed krill and then a calcium salt of PFA of palm oil. So, the other important thing in that is that the first study with that 60 30 ratio, we only fed those in the fresh period, and then we fed all the cows all the same diets in the peak period, but we maintained high milk production in those cows that have received the supplemental fatty acids in the fresh. So, there was this programming or carryover effect of how we set that cow up in the fresh period, can we maintain better milk production than we did? So in our most recent study that we, we present this summer, we then showed that if we carried on with more of that same blend in the peak period, we got another bump up again in milk You mentioned you didn't track um, very
0: directly health concerns, but were there any blood samples or anything to try to point out if there were issues?
1: Uh, we, we would have NEFA and BHBA, yep. yeah, insulin, and um, the cows were fed the higher leg, We avoided the big drops in insulin, so. Okay. so- Work we did for Dr. Dr. Contreras. Uh, Nifa was lower with more oleic acid in there. is um, interestingly, typically higher when we've been feeding some of these fatty acid blends, but I don't think that necessarily means it's a negative issue. To me, it means they're uh, probably more efficiently utilizing those ketone bodies, which are an important source of energy. So I don't, I don't, I don't get concerned about that. Um, certainly, I mean, we're talking low numbers, you know, 12 to 24 cows per treatment, depending on when they are, so we're not looking at mastitis, metritis, any of those type of things, but there was no evidence that there's one was higher than another. number. But mm-hmm. Because of how extensively our research herd is used here at MS, you know, we, we weren't able to then follow these cows longer and look at repro. Like but, um, but, you know, especially with some of these blends here, where we're getting more milk and we're not mobilizing more body weight. You know, there's no reason to believe that there'd be a negative effect on green
0: So in general, you have uh, stressed out a little bit the term that, you know, fat is not fat. There's certain fatty acids that we can use for certain purposes and at certain points of the lactation cycle. Can you give like a general overview of where do they fit on this cycle?
1: Yeah, so where are we thinking right now? So some of the... The thinking here would be working with the nutrition with your nutritionist <clears throat> and in terms of what 's the overall nutrition and diet strategy on your farm. How many diets do you typically feed on that farm mm-hmm. and then some of the recommendations I think would differ if you only had a fresh and a lactating diet or even just one diet on the whole herd versus where I see more people going now where there might be a fresh diet, a high diet, and then a a maintenance diet yep you know I think in a In a place where I had the ability to do maybe a fresh and a high in maintenance, I'd probably be looking at these palmitic oleic ratios in the fresh and the high, especially if it was a real high-producing herd. And then in the uh, maintenance group or maybe in the high group, I'd be looking at that high palmitic acid. And we, we continue to do more work on effective level of milk production on some of these things as well. We have more interest now as well in terms of how can we improve Uh, fatty acid digestibility particularly around improving stearic acid digestibility because stearic is always the major fatty acid cow's going to see because it's what's leaving the rumen from all of the fatty acids that are coming in the corn silage or the distillers etc etc so you know if we can improve um digestibility of stearic acid through different ways maybe there's then an increasing role of the stearic back in a fat supplement but I, i wouldn't recommend that right now you know, if I only had one fatty acid blend or supplement I could feed across the entire herd, uh, that's where it gets a little trickier. You know, as I said, fat's not fat. I'd probably be looking at a slightly lower oleic blend, maybe, a, you know, either a palmitic acid enriched or maybe like a 70% palmitic, 20% oleic. If, if I look at our data, piecing bits of our data together across multiple studies, different stages of lactation, I kind of like that. I like having a bit of a lake there. It helps digestibility. It's helping um, some partitioning different ways in the cow. Um, But I'd maybe go like a 70-pound on the lake if I could could only feed one across the whole herd.
0: And I'll use that to bring back the recommendation that we're trying to give these producers that grouping can increase the efficiency on your farm, It's economically sound, and it can make your management more targeted to make the most out of your cows. And there's extensive research from Dr. Cabrera over at Wisconsin. There's multiple nutritional research showing how convenient and how better you can manage your farm when you do nutritional grouping of your animals. It can certainly pay in a big way, even if there's a bit of extra work that you have to do to, to maintain this group separate.
1: Yeah, no, I would agree with that.
0: Of course, uh, besides um, that traditional research, part of your extension program also works with tackling arising issues uh, within dairy nutrition for producers here in Michigan. We know the challenges that our producers faced last year, especially when it came to forage quality and availability, and I heard in a recent webinar that um, producers can also go and watch on YouTube, the MSU Extension Dairy Team channel, and this Webinar was about a project you recently work on to determine solutions for problems when forages are in in shorthand. Can you share a little bit about that project?
1: Yes, certainly, yes. As you said, um, Martín, there's a series of webinars, Barry Bradford is organized on the Extension Team YouTube page. What we did there, it was an MAAA project, Michigan Alliance Random Agriculture project, um, that was originally focused around byproduct feeding, which um, my lab group pivoted Somewhat at the end of last year due to the, as you were saying, the crop growing conditions last year, late, late planting challenges with harvest and concerns I was hearing from nutritionists mostly about forage quality, forage supplies going forward. So we kind of switched the project to some extent, rather than it focused purely on byproducts, we focused it on looking at could we feed a very low forage diet to high producing dairy cows and maintain or not lose too much milk production on those cows. So I work with a couple commercial nutritionists to help design those diets. I typically like to work with some commercial nutrition on that make sure our diets that we're formulating have real-world applicability. So, you know, we had a high high group of cows that were all around 100, 120 pounds in milk. So, you know, good cows, uh, post-peak cows. And then we took our very close to our typical, what I'd call our high or peak diet cat, um, diet here on campus, which was like a 18.5%, 19% forage NDF, about 26 27% starch, quite a bit of high moisture corn. Um, two-thirds, one-third's corn, silage, you know, very typical here for Michigan. And then we really dropped the forage out of that diet. We took it from that 18.5%, 19% forage NDF all the way down to 11% forage you'd see some of those levels in like out west where there'd be a lot of byproduct feeding but you know a lot of people if they'd seen that diet here in michigan on paper would said that that would be a train wreck right we dropped it down to about 11 percent forage mdf and brought in a lot of byproducts and uh, brought in more corn seeds sugar beet and uh, corn gluten milk soy hulls which are byproducts that you can find here in michigan they were all diets that could easily be done here in michigan if you the shorter forage at poor forage quality or probably the biggest one you wanted to stretch your forage and then Well then we also came in with some uh, palmitic acid enriched supplement in that low forage group and also we did some amino acid balancing in that in that diet as well. So on paper on a kilogram of dry matter which refers to around two and a half pounds. Our low forage diet was a lot was quite a bit more expensive and on predicted intakes it would cost more. But if you have to stretch forage inventory or you don't have the forage, that is what it is. Yep. But what we interestingly found out, well, we weren't able to only maintain milk production in those cows, we actually increased yields of fat, yields of protein in that study. And they actually ate less, and we're still following up on this now. I think digestibility would have to have been improved. We have the digestibility data to look at, but we increased milk production in those cows, or energy-correct milk production, with less intake. So even though the diet costs more, on paper, the actual cost of feeding those cows was less because they ate less of a more expensive diet. Um, and we got more, more energy-corrected milk. So that's pretty exciting. There's a more work that can be done around that. It was not, it was not a study designed to, to specifically focus on one nutrient or another because we changed many things. Yep. We, only, we added fat into one and added amino acids into one. We didn't do that in the other. But we really did it as a proof of concept applied study to show that if you needed to stretch forage inventory we have some great opportunities to be able to do that. And as you said, the webinar's there, it shows some of the information and I would encourage anyone interested to look at that or drop me an email.
0: And I have some of the data from that study uh, to share with our producers. As you mentioned, dry matter intake was higher in the high forage diet, and it went from 75.5 pounds to 63 pounds in the low forage diet, so a 12.5 pound decrease in dry matter intake. Yet milk yield, as energy-corrected milk, increased by 2 pounds per cow, with no significant difference in body weight or body weight change. Reducing intake with increased production, translated to diet economics, meant that although the low forage diet was, as you mentioned, more expensive, the income per hundred weight was forty cents higher for that treatment, while income over feed cost per head was a dollar and eighty-four cents higher in the low forest diet when you compared to your high forest treatment. So definitely, the economics favor a little bit um, that type of um, of diets when again you're in that situation where you need to stretch your forages. Any other things that you learned from that project, Adam, regarding? Did you see any acidosis problem with the animals? Did you see any concerns of cows reacting to those diets?
1: Um, no, certainly no any no concern or any indication of any health issues. You know, rumen pH clearly wasn't lower. Milk was fat remained really high in those cows. Mm-hmm. Um, no other concerns. the The digestibility data, milk fatty acid data, will really help us understand. Uh, nutrient digestibility in that study, and how we were able to have lower intakes of, and more milk production. Traditionally, literature would say if you pull out forage, add, add in byproducts, you would typically cows would eat more because there'd be less room and fill. But we didn't see that in this study, so uh, we need to look at that more. Um, in that case, you know. But really, again, the key is this is a proof of concept for if you have to stretch that forage that you yeah. have.
0: So you also mentioned that these are post-peak cows. In general, how many days in milk
1: uh, were?
0: Around about 100
1: days, 120 days, I think, off the top of my head. But you know, they're all close to 100, 100 pounds of milk cows. And then how long do you track uh, these groups for? Uh, we had, in this study, we had two uh, 28-day periods. Okay. Four-week periods, and the cows got over. over as cross Okay.
0: Yeah. So I cannot let you go without providing, of course, recommendations for producers uh, to face milk fat depression. Are there any new recommendations, any novel ideas about how to tackle milk fat depression problems in
1: terms? I think where my thinking is a lot on that milk fat depression story nowadays is uh, rumen health, rumen pH management is the key, in my mind. You can handle higher fat diets, unsaturated fat diets, if we can maintain uh, a good rumen pH and avoid big drops. It's not acidosis. We're not looking down at those levels. But, uh, you know, we have data uh, that Mike Allen and I did in, a, I guess, um, stim- simulating the rumen in a, in a test tube culture that just taking rumen pH from a 6.2 to a 5.8 was enough to just switch uh, biohydrogenation pathways leading to milk production. So I say focus on uh, rumen health. making sure so there's enough buffering capacity in that rumen, from good forage por- NDF, you know. Um, considering the amount and type of starches in the diet, you know m- including the fermentability of the starch and the corn side, <coughs> well we're looking at that a bit more now is I think we get so concerned sometimes about no fat depression that maybe we don't have enough fatty acids in the diet from basal sources as well and so I'm kind of trying to pivot some of those discussions more about how can we maximize or optimize knock fat production and not just from supplementing, say palmitic acid, but higher fat levels in the diet. So we've been doing some more work recently with cotton seed in the diet. And you know, that's a really good way I think of helping trying to promote more milk fat production and getting some more dietary fat in the diet without without causing, you know, altered rumen biohydrogenation that may be not that I think most of it's a similar sort of concept.
0: And on that same line that also brings us to back some of the basics, right? In order to maintain that pH, you need to provide a consistent diet for your animals, which means that you have to make sure your feeder is doing a good job of mixing a consistent mix that gets delivered on time for the animals. The push up of that feed has to be on point in order to avoid that big meal because feed wasn't available. So, to avoid those big meals, you have to make sure you keep a good push up routine so animals can have feed throughout the day in a consistent basis to avoid those big drops um, that Dr. Locke is referring to.
1: Slug feeding is the big, is a big issue here that causes those drop bigger drops in, in room pH or anything to minimize those sort of slug feeding efforts. So getting more smaller meals into the cow rather than those, you know, bigger yeah. big meals really helps.
0: Uh, and dairy producers can get a hold of Adam Locke um, using Lock at msu.edu, that's Dr. Locke's email. Well, Adam, we would like to thank you for your time today, and thank you for all that uh, very useful information for our Michigan producers. Well, you're welcome. Once again, I would like to thank Dr. Locke for joining us in the podcast today. I will also like to thank you, our listeners, for joining us. Please remember to subscribe to receive information on all the past and future episodes of the virtual coffee break. To watch Dr. Locke's webinar regarding that low forage study we talked about, you may go to our YouTube channel, MSU Extension Dairy Team, and watch the Feeding Strategies to Stretch Forages video. Join us next week when dairy educator Paola Basigalupo will be discussing selective dry cow therapy strategies with Dr. Ron Erskine from the College of Veterinary Medicine here at MSU. I know I'm looking forward to that interesting discussion. So please join us then.